Next Chapter Podcasts. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hi, my name is Michael Goodfriend, and I'm the executive producer of the Play On Podcasts. There are actors who define roles, who define genres, and then there are those actors who define the craft of acting, the life of an actor. And I would say Estelle Parsons fits that category. Estelle Parsons was the first female political reporter on network TV during her five-year stint with the Today Show on NBC in the early 1950s. She made her Broadway debut as a reporter in the Ethel Merman musical Happy Hunting in 1956 and later won a Theater World Award in the title role of Mrs. Daly Takes a Lover in 1962. She has acted in feature films, including Bonnie and Clyde with Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. She received an Academy Award nomination for the role that she played in Paul Newman's directorial debut, Rachel Rachel. And she won the Best Supporting Actress Oscar for Bonnie and Clyde. She has performed on stage, on television, and has directed as well. She has done everything that an actor could possibly get their hands on, including the play on podcasts. Estelle Parsons was generous enough to play time in the play on podcast of the winter's tale. And I have been wanting to talk to her ever since we agreed to do that project. And she's a very busy person. So it took a while to get a hold of her, but we were able to finally schedule this interview, and I could not be more grateful. Estelle Parsons, welcome to the bonus content series for the Play On podcast series, The Winter's Tale. Thank you. Nice to be here. Estelle, how did you get started on this journey of being an actor? Well, when I was seven, I think my mother took me to a community theater in Lynn, Massachusetts, and uh, she did. Uh, she was part of that little theater group. She did props and things for shows that they did. I was kind of fascinated by it. I'd go along and sit in the front row and watch people up there on the stage doing whatever they did. And uh, they did a lot of children's shows. So in my childhood, I played first a frog, and. Uh, that uh, was my first stage appearance, and I had on my frog suit and my frog head, and out I went on the stage. And as soon as I got out there in that frog head, I thought, I can't see the audience. I'm never going to wear anything over my head again on the stage, and I did not. And I was only seven when I had that idea, so that was weird. But I went on to play a place, and I played Little Bo Peep on a birthday cake for Sleeping Beauty. And what else did I do? I don't know, a lot of uh, children's plays, you know, and that was a lot of fun and I loved it. 
And then when I was 15, I stopped doing that. I didn't want to kiss boys on stage. And then it got into plays like Junior Miss and things where I would have to be uh, kissing boys on stage. And I didn't think that was appropriate. I was a New Englander, of course. And also I went off to boarding school and that was kind of the end of my community theater activity. I went off to boarding school and then college and then went on to the Today Show when I finished college. So never got an opportunity to kiss teenage boys. Did you know you were going to be an actor or did you take a different path? No, I didn't really have any intention. I, I didn't think acting was something you did when you grew up, you know, or did professionally. It's like, you know, I love to sing and I love to sing the blues. And so uh, just lately, I mean, now that my life is pretty much over or a lot of it, I I um, thought... Uh, I, I don't think that's a way to spend my life just singing. I don't know why I thought just acting was different from just singing, but in any case, I thought I'm not going to continue my singing because I don't think that's appropriate to spend my life singing. I have a pretty good brain, you know, and I was also conflicted because I was very interested in politics. I was the first woman and the youngest person elected to the planning board in my town, Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is a very famous old New England town. And um, Nelson Aldrich, who's a very famous architect, was the head of the planning board. So I was very pleased that I got elected to that. But no sooner did I get elected to it than I went running off to New York to do the Today Show. So, Did you study acting in college? What was your major? How could I study acting? I'd been acting since I was seven. I don't know how you study acting. That idea of of acting as an academic subject is so disgusting to me. But there is one good reason. And I know people who uh, got out of college and tried to get going in the theater, which is, you know, no, my story's different, but uh, and then they really can't. These days, you can't really get into the acting profession unless you've got an MFA. And that MFA has to be from certain places that are watched by casting directors and CBS and NBC and people who are, uh, once they they look at the MFA programs, like my friend Jessica Chastain, from the time she was a sophomore at Juilliard, CBS was trying to sign her up to a long-term contract. Just as an example of what happens. Now I had another friend, he got out, he couldn't get any jobs anywhere. I said, I have to go back and take an MFA program because through the MFA programs, they get to audition for the agents that won't even see them if right. they just come to New York looking to act. and the agents won't have anything to do with them. But once they go to a certain MFA program and then the agents are all, all over them too. It's the way into the club, what? right? It's it's yeah, how you yeah, get into yeah, the club yeah, as they yeah. say. Isn't that awful? I don't yeah. like to think of it as a club, but you're absolutely right. So you, you went into politics. You, how did, how did you make this, this step from being a board member at Marblewood, Massachusetts to the today show? How did that happen? Well, I was all, I also went to law school for a year. 
I went to uh, Boston University Law School for a year because Harvard didn't take women. My father and grandfather had gone to Harvard, of course, so I thought I would go to Harvard, but they wouldn't take women. Then I did one year at BU Law School, and then Harvard took women. But they would only take women in their first year of Harvard Law School. So I certainly was not about to repeat my first year of law school. I mean, the first year of law school is not fun, you know. Life for a woman in those days was uh, a little fraught, a little full of issues. And I thought, gosh, I don't want to go into a profession that's mostly men because I'm going to be terribly lonely. It's just not collegial for a woman. And uh, that, uh, of course, is altogether different now, but frankly, it didn't get different for many, 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 many years. You must have been one of the first female law students in the country. Yeah. There were like 299 men in my class at BU Law School and myself and the and one other woman, and she was the wife of a guy at the law school. Am I making any sense at all? It all seems like ancient history to me now. Oh, it makes Total sense. And I, I, I'm fascinated. I know where everybody who's listening would be so fascinated to, to hear this perspective. I'm wondering what, what led to you getting onto the, the Today Show? You, was there, were you the first female host of the Today Show? You know, this is a cautionary tale for young people. I was in college. And my roommate in college had a sister who was dating and eventually married uh, a vice president at NBC. So I went to New York to visit my college friends. And one of them said, why don't you go in and see Mike Dan? He's a vice president at NBC. And I did. I just went in to say hello, actually. And um, the next thing I know, he said to me, you know, we're going to start morning television. Why don't you go see Mort Werner? He's coming in from California. He's a radio man from California. He's going to run morning television. And he actually ran Today, Home, and Tonight, which was Pat Weaver. That is, of course, now Sigourney Weaver's father. Pat Weaver had this, We in our bottom drawers, we had this huge Bible about what TV was going to be. In the morning news and features, at nighttime, the entertainment, the Tonight Show, and in the middle was this thing called Home, which was a woman's program. So I was one of eight people who put together the Today Show, and then I was one of the people who started the Home Show in the middle. Arlene Francis was the uh, celebrity host, and I was the special reporter for the home show, which was in the middle of the day. And that show, Home, did not work. Today and tonight are still on the air, but that show, Home, in the middle did not work. But what did work was the shows that are on now, which were similar to Home. That was like there was a Dinah Shore show, and they had features, you know, about women or interviews with women. They, they were not nearly as interesting as our home show. But anyway, that's a long story about we had this revolving set. And, oh, it was another world completely, you know. 
how did the the work on television as a a host for uh, the morning show and the 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 home show lead to you uh, becoming an actor professionally? I was asked to cover for the Today Show the Grace Kelly wedding. And uh, I had just gotten married, not just gotten married, but I had just, I had been married a couple of years and I had twins and I didn't want to cover the Grace Kelly wedding. In fact, I hated doing that kind of work. I hated interviewing people. I interviewed Marilyn Monroe. I interviewed everybody. And I just hated interviewing people. I'm from New England where you don't ask people about themselves. It's just not done. So it was very, very very difficult for me. So I said to the head of the Today Show, Jerry Green, I, 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 thanks for the offer, but I don't want to go to the Grace Kelly wedding. So he looked at me, I looked at him, and we both said, this better be the end of our relationship. I better do something else. So I went home. My husband said to me, why don't you go on the stage? You're always talking about that. My friend Abe Burrows has got a new musical with Ethel Merman. Why don't you go sing for him? So I did, and he hired me. And that was the beginning of my singing career. And then I just fell into acting. I I was singing. I was actually at the time in Three Penny Opera, and um Someone said, would you please go audition for this show? They've had two people, women in, and they don't like, I'm a tragic comedian. And that's a special area. There are not many women. Women are either serious or they're funny, but there are not many tragic comedians. And I was one of them. So every time they didn't have the right person and a job, they would call me because I'm a tragic comedian. So that was how I happened to do Mrs. Daly had a lover. She had a teenage lover. She played the trombone. Oh, it was really a crazy play. That is such a great description, a tragic comedian. I think you're the first person I've ever heard to describe themselves that way. But it makes no, 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 no. That famous French woman, Madeleine Renault. Oh, of course. She was a tragic comedian. But I guess, you know, in uh, Paris, they had tragic comedians. But the only reason I know about that is because I did that play of Beckett's Happy Days. Oh, sure. You know, one person play that Madeleine Renault was famous for. How did the stage work lead to your film work? I was feeling very uncomfortable in my stage work. It's very hard when you start rehearsals, you know, and it used to be in the old days that uh, you would start rehearsals and the director would say, move here, move there. You know, he was getting the play up on its feet. And I was always very uncomfortable because it wasn't truthful to me. And uh, I, I only can say this in hindsight because who was thinking that way when you're, you know, trying to get going and, the theater, but um, it's very important not to lose your sense of truth if you're a young actor. Your own truth, whatever that means, I don't know, but it's very important that you cling to your sense of truth. And every play you got into, the director would say, now move here, now move there. And I wouldn't be ready to move in those places yet. I would be trying to figure out who my character was. So I became very interested 
in how an actor gets his character, his or her character, uh, developed when you were being told move here or there. And then I encountered Arthur Penn, and there was a thing called the Berkshire Theater Festival, which was an experimental theater summer in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, of all places. And um, I did this experimental work with Arthur Penn where you read, uh, he said, don't read the play uh, before you come. Because some people like Julie Harris, they would learn their part before they even started rehearsal. So he said, don't pay any attention to the play and come to rehearsal uh, with the play script. So we went and uh, we were doing Skin of Our Teeth and we read the first act and he said, now get up and do it. Well, this of course is the actor's nightmare that you have to play a play when you don't have any idea what the play is. But this was Arthur's way of teaching actors to um, get their instruments involved rather than creating a character from the outside in, which is what the Brits do, uh, and a lot of Americans too, even now, uh, you, you, found, you found yourself in the character. It was very weird. It was very weird, but that was what we did. We read the act, and then we got up, not knowing anything except what we just read, and, and tried to create the play, and it worked. That was just one reading of the play with the cast, and Arthur Penn would then say, get up and do it, and you had yeah. to be completely instinctive and intuitive based on yeah. what you got from that single reading. Whatever you your basically improvised. instrument was getting, you know, you weren't getting it consciously. You didn't know the lines yet. All you, But yeah, it's the actor's nightmare, you know, that you're going to be called on to get up and do the part, which you don't know. It, it gets you over a lot of fears, a lot of inhibitions, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Having done that, you then have the freedom and you make bold choices. I, I would imagine also you retain, to some extent, the choices you made in that yes. first yeah, Pass. I think he knew that because, you know, after the Second World War, these guys came back and they all had this GI Bill, which they could go to college free or something. Mm -hmm. Arthur Pan had gone to this famous school in North Carolina where uh, they did all kinds of experimental stuff, psychologically speaking. So I think he somehow developed his technique from studying psychology down there in Chapel Hill or wherever the heck they are in North Carolina. And then did did he bring you into film? Was it Arthur Penn who Oh yeah, I would I, I had no interest in films. I had was I had a pretty good stage career singing and then acting in New York and I never cared a hoot about acting in a film. What do you do? Act to a lot of cameras in a room? It seemed ridiculous to me. I wanted to I wanted 500 or 1,000 people out there that I was going to go out, you know, and really swing with on the stage. So um, anyway, he said, I'm doing this film. I was doing Skin of Our Teeth up in Stockbridge with with Annie Bancroft and uh, Alvin Epstein and Frank Langella. And uh, he said, I have this uh, movie. And I said, oh, Arthur, I don't want to do any movies. I just don't want to do movies. 
Uh, but anyway, I'll read it. So I read it and I thought, oh, why doesn't get Madeline Sherwood? I'm not interested in these movies. And then the more I read, I realized it was a pretty darn good part. But anyway, I was on my way to join a rep company. I had two kids and I was their uh, sole support. So um, I was on my way to San Francisco to be in a new rep company, which had always been my dream to be in a rep company. And um, all of a sudden I got a phone call saying, well, the, the backing is gone and we're not having the rep company. So I had to crawl back to Arthur Penn and say, well, I'll do your movie because I don't have a job anymore <laughs> in the theater. <laughs> the first actor yeah. who fell back onto a film career from a theater career. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably, yeah. I waited to do Bonnie and Clyde, and I had a few months to wait. So I went to the library and researched Bonnie and Clyde. So by the time I got to the set, I knew more about Bonnie and Clyde than anybody on that movie did, or even the guys who wrote it. And I was pretty disgusted with what I was reading because it had been so kind of Hollywoodized, you know? Mm-hmm from the real story, which was quite gruesome about her and her leg, the the bottom, before they were caught and killed, the uh, below her knee had, she had been, uh, they had been burned and something. They were in all these shootouts. And her leg, the bottom half of her leg had grown together with the top half from burns so that yeah. she couldn't walk anymore. So he was having to, they would be, you know, on the run and he would have to carry her because she couldn't walk. I mean, the story is so gruesome. Uh -huh. But of course it got Hollywoodized in the movie, but I had been doing all this research. And um, I, when I, the first day I said to Warren, I'd really like to meet my character. She was still alive. And they were paying her off. My character, Michael Pollard's characters, were still alive in Texas where we were shooting. And they were paying them off. He said, wait till I get my deal settled with them, and then I'll introduce you. So we started working. And from that research, I'm, I've never been a research person. And from that research, when I started acting that character, that character just flew right out of me. She was right there waiting just from all I research I'd done. Isn't that interesting? You see things That's... go into your body and you don't re or into your brain, right? And you don't realize it. And then you get up and there they are there waiting for you. Was this your film debut? I had done one day on Frank Perry. I knew Frank Perry from the actor's studio. And I had done... I was on tour with Carol Channing. I was doing The Millionaires. And uh, Frank Perry said, would you just do this one day for me in this new movie that I have? So I said, sure. So I went to do it. I was, I played the mother of a kid who locked herself in her refrigerator. So I just had to stand at an ironing board and say about three lines. But that was my real movie debut, not Bonnie and Clyde. But the first real part was in Bonnie and Clyde, yeah. 
And I fell into the movies. I didn't want to have anything to do with the movie. And you won an Oscar. Yeah. Did you like the the process of acting on film or did it feel more artificial even than than No, I told you I did not care about it at all. And then I was friends with Paul and Joanne over at the actor's studio. Paul said, I wish you'd play this part for me in this movie. And so I said, okay. That was Rachel, Rachel. Stuart Stern wrote it, and it was very unlike uh, Hollywood movies. It was not literally written. I mean, it was not a phony baloney. It was really, you read it and you thought, oh, what is this? What is this? And then it came to life on the screen. I don't know if you noticed. But we rehearsed Rachel, Rachel uh, for about three weeks as if it were a stage show before we shot it. Join Play On Premium to get merch like t-shirts, hoodies, and coffee mugs, ad-free episodes, and bonus content video featuring interviews with the actors, producers, playwrights, and directors who brought it all to life. Go to ncpodcasts.com and subscribe to Play On Premium to support the art and the artists. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. What was it like working with Warren Beatty? Uh, He was, uh, that was his first uh, movie as a producer, and he was a very good producer. And, you know, uh, when Bonnie and Clyde came out, Bosley Crowther slammed it. It was at the Toronto Film Festival. And Bosley Crowther uh, just wrote a scathing review in the New York Times. And then... um, it became a huge, huge hit because um, Warren went around to the theaters to make sure the sound was right. He was very protective of that movie. He went on to produce a lot of other movies, but that particular movie was his first. And he was very careful about how it was presented. And um, anyway, it turned out to be, uh, you know, it, it just uh, struck a chord because it, uh, in it, Faye spits in the face of the Texas Ranger. Well, I had been to law school, and I had a very acute sense of social justice. And when we shot that scene, I thought, what am I doing in this movie? This movie is anti the rule of law. And what do I believe of law? So I thought, what am I doing in this movie? And I didn't mind going around telling the press that all the time, too. But they didn't care. Interesting. And now, and Warren Beatty brought you back to play Tess Trueheart in uh, Dick Tracy. Yeah. yeah, that was just for fun. <laughs> How was Paul Newman uh, to work with? Oh, uh, they were great, Paul and Joanne. They really knew how to deal with this uh, issue of uh, fame and notoriety and all that. You know, they really were terrific people. And uh, 
I said to him, you know, you really need to get Dee Dee Allen to cut your movie because Dee Dee Allen had cut Bonnie and Clyde and she knew how to cut a movie so the performances leapt out at you. So I knew from that that the editing of the film was the important thing. The number of frames the actor got for his or her performance was what you really needed to go for if you were an actor. Otherwise, you all looked the same. So I said to Paul, you better get in touch with Dee Dee Allen because she's an extraordinary film editor and this is a play about people. And so he got Dee Dee Allen to come and cut the movie. And so then he had a big success with it. You also worked several times with Gene Hackman. I was working with Gene Hackman in uh, Murray Schiskel played. Dustin Hoffman and myself and Gene were in a play of Murray Schiskel's called Fragments. And uh, Arthur couldn't get the man he wanted to play my husband in Bonnie and Clyde. So I said, ask Gene Hackman because Gene and I had the same rhythm somehow. We worked together awfully well without even thinking about it, which is not usual. You know, usually you go in, or in my case, I go in, somebody's going to play my husband. I look at him and I think, this is not possible. And then you have to pretend he's somebody else. You know, that's the way acting works. But Gene Hackman and I just had, I don't know, the same rhythms. I think we acted the same way. So I said to him, get Gene Hackman. And so he did. And I couldn't stand it because I could not understand why anybody wanted to have a film career. And I would go crying to Arthur Penn at lunchtime. And I've just been in the trailer with Gene and he wants to stay in the movies. He wants to be a big movie star. I'm just so upset. How could he possibly want to be a big movie star? I was a really strange kid, I guess. And um, anyway, he went on to be the movie star he wanted to be, so that was good for him, but it was a terrible loss for the American theater. But that's what people like to do. You know, you make a really good living in the movies. Men do, but anyway. You returned to the stage. Yeah. And you felt ultimately more comfortable? I mean, I assume that you returned to the stage because you felt more comfortable on stage. It's a challenge every night to take people into an imaginary world for two or three hours, 500 up to 1,000 people in, a, in an auditorium to take them on an imaginary trip. It's not easy to do that, you know? You have yeah. to have a good deal of talent to be able to do that. Go out there and people, you know want to follow you into a crazy imaginary world it's great i love it it's a huge challenge night after night eight shows a week whatever i love it i'm very interested in the art of acting i guess i'd have to say that i didn't think the art of singing was worth spending my life over but i certainly do think the art of acting was and you know i'm still doing it i moderate at the actor's studio and do a lot of stuff for young people and still direct a lot and it's good it's a good life for me it's been a good life and i think when young people want to go into the theater or you know 
now they get in through television and that stuff. But I think um, they try, and early on they understand. They either want that lifestyle or they don't. Right. It's kind of a weird lifestyle. You know, you have to hang around a lot. Like when people retire, I think I've been retired my whole life because you spend most of your time not doing anything. And then the phone rings and then the next thing you know, you're off somewhere for four weeks or a month or two. And then then the next thing you know, you're home again, you know, sitting in the local <laughs> coffee shop day after day. And then the phone rings again. It's it's a it's a kind of crazy life, particularly in my case, I had twins to support. So it wasn't easy, but I loved it. Do you like doing Shakespeare? Uh, I don't. I don't like performing Shakespeare. I'm not I'm not really a big Shakespeare fan. I had a Shakespeare company for Joe Papp and I I have done some really what has been uh, fantastically reviewed uh Shakespeare because uh Joe Papp read about my aunt and Cleopatra which I had only directed because I wanted to play Cleopatra but I couldn't find a director so I said well the heck with it. I'll direct it myself, and then it got uh, it got reviews that were ecstatic. So Joe Papp hired me to start a Shakespeare company in the '80s, which I did. And for two years, we worked. We did Romeo and Juliet, As You Like It, and the Scottish play. And uh, then after two years, he ran out of money, and we disbanded. But we played for the uh, school system in New York City. We sure. had an arrangement with Board of Education, and I set up this whole program where the uh, actors were like a sports team because I knew that people like sports teams when they're in high school because I did too. And um, we knew how to approach these students and get them involved. I had the sports team, which was really a lot of actors. And they'd come out and they'd juggle and do stuff and get to know the guys. And then they would start the play where there would be these people in costumes. So the students immediately understood what the theater was about, that you had a person. And then that person pretended to be another person. So we had a very, very successful couple of years with the uh, with the uh, with the uh, New York City school system and uh i was at dinner at the mayor's house because my husband was corporation counsel for Koch, and uh, the guy who was head of the board of education came to the dinner and he said oh i was in an elevator with a teacher and i said what has happened this year uh in your school, how do you feel about it? She said, only one good thing happened this year, and that was Estelle Parsons' Shakespeare program. <laughs> so we had this way to get kids involved, you know. They'd meet the team, then the team would act, then, the, then those actors would go into the schoolrooms. So they already had a relationship with these kids. So these kids really loved them. So we had a, a very successful, wonderful two years doing that. I wonder how how did you find your way into this podcast playing time in the winter's tale? I don't have any idea. <laughs> I don't have any idea how I found my way there. 
I have an agent, and he called and said they want you to do this podcast. So I said, sure, because, you know, any opportunity to act, I'm glad to grab if I have the time. I can tell you how we found you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Not that you were somebody who needed to be found, but um, Louis Douthat, who... Oh, uh, Louis Douthat, yes. Yes, Louis Douthat, who runs Play on Shakespeare. Yes. God, if you could get Estelle Parsons, she'd be fantastic. Get her into one of these podcasts. And <laughs> so oh, that's so amazing. You see, we, that- yep. We 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 decided to give it a shot. It was a wild shot, but we thought, hey, you know, uh why not offer you this wonderful, wonderful, basically one speech part, one beautiful yeah, big right. speech. What was the experience like for you coming in and recording that speech? Well, I really loved it. And uh, I spent a lot of time working on it. I had Louise sing and I read everything I could about it. I just went to work and researched the whole thing and was uh, pretty prepared when I came in, which sort of surprised the uh, director. Yes. Her name is Tracy Young, a fantastic director. Yes. Yes. And I had a wonderful time with her, but uh, it's a lot of fun to work on Shakespeare. There's so much to work on and so many people have written about it. And you're like, <laughs> you like have a room full of people talking to you about whatever thing you do in Shakespeare. It's great. Can I ask you, who is your favorite of all the writers that you've worked on? Well, my favorite piece, of course, is uh, Miss Margarita's Way, which was written by... Uh, a Brazilian man called Roberto Ataidi. And uh, it was about a totalitarian uh, dictatorship when Brazil had a totalitarian dictatorship. But the metaphor for it was an eighth grade school teacher. Because, you know, Freud said when they get into middle school, they're ineducable. And so uh, Roberto wrote this one person piece directed to the audience, which is a classic around the world now, is being always done. It's done in France all the time and Belgium and all over Europe and not done in this country so much because we don't really have that kind of theater. But um, he would have to be my very favoriteest uh, playwright. Of course, I adore Chekhov. But I've not had the... I've only had the opportunity to... um, direct uh, Chekhov, and it's a profound experience. He really, I don't know, understood human nature better than almost anyone that I can think of. But that play, Miss Margarita's Way, which was done directly to the audience, which is not an experience most actors like, but you see, I came from singing and playing the piano. I came from another background than most actors so of course i love mixing it up with an audience so that was my favorite experience of my life your favorite experience so that would also be your favorite role that you've ever played yeah i'm not much for roles you know people would call up when i got famous from the movies people would call up and say what do you want to do we'd like to produce something for you then i don't i don't really have anything i really want to do i'm just waiting for the phone to ring you also did uh, 
a lot of television. Uh, you were in All in the Family. You were in uh, the Roseanne. Am I am I right about this? Yeah, but this? that's not a lot of television. That's okay. only two. But yeah. uh, the money's good, and I had two kids to put through school on my own. And so I did. I did uh, some movies to get them through school, and I did Roseanne because I so admired her as a comic. And she was wonderful to work with. I really loved it. I did a movie with Jackie Gleason, who was a friend of my family anyway. But I just so love really wonderful comics, I think you call them. And I, I, I toyed with the idea that I myself could be a comic. But I couldn't do it because I had this whole act written for me, which I paid for and everything. But I think you want to get laughs if you're a comic. And I could never get interested in getting the laughs. I'd be more interested in why did they laugh or why didn't they laugh? Do you know what I mean? I just I thought I'm not really cut out for this. Though I'm a funny person and I've been funny all my life and people have laughed at me since I was four years old. So that's so all right. Takes the bills. You found the perfect thing in being a tragic comedian. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything you can share with us? You've lived this incredibly rich life. You've experienced so much. You've worked with so many different types of people as a storyteller, essentially. We're in this really fraught, difficult period of world history, it seems. What wisdom can you share with us based on your experience about how to navigate our way through this very difficult passage of time where people are so polarized and the world is so fraught with what feels like just danger and collapse? I think it's very important and something that I seem to have been born with to be true to yourself, uh, to find your your own inner truth. I think when you get sidetracked by money or whatever you might get sidetracked by, I guess it's money or fame or fortune, fortune of fame. But I think if you lose your your inner truth, your inner honesty, uh, you're just lost. I mean, it's really, uh, you know, New York City is a world unto itself. So a lot of these issues uh, I only see when, you know, I'm from New England. So I spend a lot of time there, particularly all the summers. And so I see what the world is going through, but uh, because I'm in this alternate universe, which is the theater, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, involved with it in a way that other people in other walks of life really have to be involved with it. But it's very hard, isn't it? It's hard containing your anger sometimes if you're an angry person. But how did you get to be an angry person? Because you gave up on yourself and then you're angry. I don't know. I just think you have to try to be truthful, truthful to whatever your inner workings are. I've always been that way. I always thought people kind of didn't like me because 
I was always making a beeline for my own truth. Ah. So I'm very happy with my life and what everything that it has been, the ups and downs, and there are plenty of downs if you're a woman, you know, and particularly in the theater, parts you're lost, blah, blah, blah. But I do think if you, I always just followed what I knew I had to do. And I don't care uh, if I have to go hungry that way, I'll go hungry that way. You know, I can't, I can't have another God except my own inner truth. Well, those are words to live by. And I greatly appreciate your sharing them with us. Estelle Parsons, what an absolute honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much for sharing your time, your wisdom, your experiences, your humor, and your truth with all of our listeners. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. You've been listening to the Play On Podcast bonus content series. You can learn more about the Play On Podcast at Next Chapter Podcast's website, ncpodcasts.com. That's N as in next, C as in chapter, podcast with an S at the end, dot com, where you can find other Play On Podcast series and interviews, along with talk podcasts like The 500, Indecent with Kiki Anderson, Beef with Bridget Todd, and a whole lot more. I'd like to thank Jeremiah Tittle, the founder of Next Chapter Podcast, and our producer on this interview. Our audio engineer, editor, and sound designer is Justin Cortez. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcast for updates on all the latest content. And don't forget to rate and review our shows. It really does make a difference. I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works in the Play On Podcast series with you, along with lots of enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcast. Next Chapter Podcasts.